89%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jenny Lam and my co-presenter today is Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice. Good morning. So on today's Back Chat, we'll be discussing how Hong Kong can become an international hub for charities as the Hong Kong Jockey Club launches a new 5 billion Hong Kong dollars research institute to promote a culture of philanthropy. At the launching ceremony, Chief Executive John Lee said he hopes that Hong Kong can become a major international hub for philanthropy and that the new Institute of Philanthropy would contribute towards that goal. What do you think? Does Hong Kong have what it takes to be a true leader in charitable courses? Are donors and deep pockets all it takes? And how can the SAR take the next step in achieving this goal? After 9.45 this morning, we'll be getting reaction on plans to bring Urdu back into university entrance exams. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, me email us at backchat.rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, if you are listening to us on 1584 AM on the south side of Hong Kong Island, uh, here's a message just for you. Some urgent maintenance work will be taking place today on our Chung Hum Kok transmitter from 11 this morning until 6 this evening, meaning it will be out of action. But of course, you can uh, listen to Radio 3 Territory wide on 567 AM as well as online and on our mobile apps. And so joining us this morning from our Admiralty uh, studio is Kithmina Hewitt. He's a senior advisor at the Center for Asian Philanthropy and Society. Good morning, Mr. Hewitt. Good morning, Jenny. Um, and also with us is Professor Bernadette Choi. She's uh, an honorary professor of practice, a faculty of social sciences at Hong Kong University. She specializes in philanthropy studies. Good morning. Good morning. 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 Good morning, Jenny and Janice. Good morning. Um, so, uh, Mr. Hewitt, tell us, uh, what do you think of this idea of this new institute for philanthropy? Thanks, Janice. Uh, thanks, Jenny. Uh, so, it's important to recognize that Hong Kong has had a history and a well-established history of philanthropy across multiple decades. And in February, uh, the Center for Asian Philanthropy and Society, CAPS, did a study on how Hong Kong can be a philanthropic hub. And one of the key components of this is to create an ecosystem that can contribute to this because we already have a strong financial system. We already have that philanthropic uh, legacy. So then it's about creating institutions that can contribute to this. So CAPS has been in operation since 2013 and has been working on research and advice uh, on this sector uh, for 10 years across Asia. And the entrance of new players is always welcome. And I think it can help build that ecosystem where we can uh, put together the resources in terms of finances, but also then collaborate in terms of the research and other best practices that come from Asia to develop Hong Kong as a philanthropy hub. Professor Cho, you wrote a book called The City with the Heart, Stories of Giving from Hong Kong and Hong Kong University. Uh, tell us about this giving tradition that we have here. Uh, it's been a long time since Hong Kong was, uh, was actually Dutch the best city in, in philanthropy um, a long time ago. And in fact, during the Wenchen um, earthquake, that was the, the highest point when Hong Kong could raise something like 300 million a day from the public for the charity. 
Hong Kong, uh, because of its culture and because of its social makeup, is very um, charitable. And when we talk about philanthropy, it's not just deep pockets, um, although Hong Kong has many. It's also the, the public and social good and how people are used to donating. Um, the flag day is a typical thing in Hong Kong. It's, it's part of our culture and we almost forget that it is a donation and we're all doing that. Yeah, so, so part of the um, mission of this new institute is that Hong Kong can be a hub for mainland China and around Asia. What kind of things that can, that can, can they learn from us? I think there's a, there are a lot of practices, cultural and also historical. And Hong Kong has been built, if you realize it, um, on philanthropy. Even 100 years ago, starting with the Tonghua hospitals, and all the public chipping in um, to build even a university. So uh, there are many comparative studies on various cultures. The US culture, giving culture is very different from Asian. And there are many cases, uh, if you look deep into that, uh, about how, why people donate, how they donate, and um, the laws, uh, which caps, uh, which is Capminas uh, organization is also researching into the social um, infrastructure on tax uh, or tax exemption and other rules and so on. So I, I think with the geopolitics now, it is true that um, uh, apart from culture, philanthropy could be another very strategic uh, angle for international exchange and also putting Hong Kong on the world map. Right. And Bernadette, I mean, earlier, Mr. Hewitt, he was talking about how Hong Kong has a long history of philanthropy and uh, um, for it to be an international hub for this, we really need an, uh, a good ecosystem. Do you think uh, the, the jockey club's uh, new uh, institutive uh, philanthropy will uh, be able to provide this uh, um, ecosystem that we need? <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, first of all, they just announced it. So there's a lot more uh, about what they will do. But they did specify that it is a uh, $5 billion um, infrastructure, which is big and almost like a, um, a tertiary, a small tertiary institute. And they call it the think, fund, do tank. So it's not, they say it's not just a think tank, it will fund and do. So with the sort of uh, um, financial backing that Jockey Club is famous for, uh, it will be a sustainable and definitely it will have lots of potentials. So I think, um, yes, that it, it can do a lot, maybe even more than the government because the government has so many restrictions. Um, they specify that they will connect and convene and they will synthesize and share and build professional capacities. Um, I, a bit of, a bit of advertisement. I have been teaching um, the subject of uh, philanthropy and public engagement in the university for the last seven years, which means Hong Kong does have this, um, uh, what do you call it, intellectual leadership. Uh, I've been teaching this master in nonprofit management. So you can see that um, in the universities in Hong Kong, there is already a very specialized area and uh, for non-profit management for the uh, um, third sector in society is important and funding is important and therefore philanthropy which is also a sociological uh, topic 
um, it's something that we should be looking more into. And it's been, you know, the, the idea that there should be an institute or a, a, a center has been floating around for more than 10 years, in fact, though the public is not quite aware of it. So in a way, it's good that um, Jockey Club has taken up this initiative at this uh, historic moment. And definitely, I think with the geopolitics, which means even even science and tech, and uh, you've heard a lot about the restrictions that um, the West, especially US, has put on um, China and Hong Kong uh, about exchange and uh, military implications and all that. Well, culture and philanthropy are less political, shall we say. And that's why um, during the last two days of forum, um, the Jockey Club was able to bring over uh, a more than a hundred um, speakers from all over the world, including uh, Nobel's, uh, Oscar winner, and so on. And there's no, absolutely no restriction, no conflict on that. So maybe in that sense, philanthropy is also a good way for us to connect with the rest of the world in the next decade or so. Right. And of course, uh, I must uh, point out, we, we did uh, invite the Jockey Club to join our program this morning to uh, tell us more about it. But unfortunately, they were unable to do so. Um, but from uh, what we know so far, um, it, it's going to be focused uh, on uh, it's like a research institute to promote a culture, culture of uh, philanthropy. And uh, Mr. Hewish, um from your understanding, do you think um, what it will do is sort of similar to what uh, your society is doing? I think it's important to complement different works. Uh, so CAPS does work across Asia, across 18 economies in Asia. And uh, of course, with the Jockey Club's financial resources, and then it's, it's always good to kind of collaborate on research work as well uh, and to provide that sort of comparative analysis. So if the Jockey Club, for example, is going to focus on Hong Kong and the mainland and philanthropy in the re region, um, it's important to also provide that comparative perspective from other parts of Asia because there is a story to tell about philanthropy from Asia. I think traditionally we think of philanthropy as a Western concept and the best practices that come from the West. But that's not necessarily true because we have a history of philanthropy in the region and there are quite a few unique characteristics that come within the region that I think we can learn from and then adapt and kind of adapt to the specific cases uh, that we come together on. And, uh, and uh, when you talk about uh, different types of uh, philanthropy, I mean, um, in your view, is it uh, as easy as giving money away? It's about giving money with a focus. Um, so the purpose of philanthropy is to recognize a particular issue, whether it's the environment, health, education, and putting in money, time, or any other resource, for example, expertise, to help solve that issue. So, for example, if it's elderly care or uh, fine, uh, education literacy, putting in money to help education literacy, uh, literacy rates in impoverished regions in Asia uh, will help it. And if you have, for example, a skill, a professional skill like accounting, then putting in that expertise to help a non-profit uh, or uh, an institution to help alleviate a certain social issue is also the way to go about it. So it's not just about putting in money, but in putting in money with a focus to address a particular social issue. So Bernadette, I mean, some of the 
big institutions in Hong Kong that comes to mind. You mentioned Tunghua earlier. Uh, we will shamelessly plug Operation Santa Claus here because RTHK and, and Morning Post uh, run that jointly, right? Um, so, so uh, Mr. Hewitt pointed out that this is not a Western idea. That Asia has a tradition of of giving. You know, we know about Buddhist institutions that that, that give a lot. Um, what are some of the features that's unique to Asian philanthropy? I think um, uh, uh, the word philanthropy, of course, is comes from the um, English word and the and the Greek origin of the love of mankind. Um, in Chinese, we have a different word for it, and it's mostly about um, compassion and good deeds. So there, there are just, just different uh, social um, and historic and cultural. Uh, history and behavior. Um, Buddhism is one uh, in in the sense of uh, love for all mankind and equality. And in, even in the um, very Buddhist tradition, there's a sense that when you when you donate, you the beneficiary is not a beneficiary. They are giving you the opportunity to do good, and therefore you should be the one that should be grateful to all these people that give you this opportunity to do good. So it's a, it's, a, there are many different concepts, including this concept of the, the benefactor and beneficiary, which is a kind of power and one is above the other. Whereas in Buddhism, it's, it's so equal that uh, it's uh, almost a very Zen thing. So um, coming back to reality, um, in Hong Kong, we are used to, uh, a lot of um, doing good. Uh, for example, uh, I mentioned Flag Day. Flag Day is something that is very uh, common in Hong Kong, but you you won't believe it. In mainland China, it can't happen. It can't happen because of many of the um, societal uh, perceptions and so on. They would think that there could be easily cheating and fraud and so on. So um, the, a lot of the charitable traditions have been built because of certain um, social behavior or our way of living. In Hong Kong, there are many charitable organizations, not in, including Operation Santa Claus, which have come up because of people's um, uh, either, uh, it either de de deliberate uh, actions or plans, or it just happened uh, because there were certain things that, that came with it. Uh, so we, we do have a course on that, and we do look into more than 100 cases in my book about the various modes of uh, fundraising. Now, Tonghua Hospital, as you know, still has an annual fundraising show on TV, which everybody feels is so old-fashioned, and yet they are they are getting money. Um, and there are many grateful uh, people who have benefited from either the schools or the hospitals, and therefore when they are old, what we call it mature, and they leave a legacy, um, these nameless people will easily leave their their, their apartment or even their uh, whatever little money that they have to the Tonghua hospitals quietly, and you won't even notice it. So a lot of these traditions are worth our exploring and also analyzing to see how to uh, maximize it and also to spread the goodwill, the sense of compassion, values. Values are important. It's not just money. It's not just how much you donate and, uh, you know, Bill Gates, and you don't have to worship him. We are all benefactors and uh, philanthropists in our small ways. And doing good, doing charity, um, in a way, 
philanthropy counts not only money but also time the volunteering of time and good deeds just a helping hand uh, that's usually the international measurement as well. Yeah, you mentioned uh, some of the obstacles of, of spreading this message uh, in the mainland, for example, that people might be uh, worried that they're, they're being scammed, they're being cheated of their money. What role do you see this institute play in um, helping, you know, change that perception? Oh, oh thank you for me. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, um, I, I shouldn't be too biased. Um, in fact, in the mainland, there's a lot of, there's a booming philanthropy and also there's a lot of private money now. So they are all, um, uh, there's a lot of generosity and the government is also realizing that and trying to promote that. All they need is a very uh, secure and um, very good system to make sure that there, there's a, a proper way to donate and also to benefit and also in the best uh, common good and they call it um, the common prosperity. Um, to give you an example, when we have this uh, a course in the university, more than half of our students are from the mainland. Uh, they are the NGOs leaders. They are, some of them are philanthropists. They have their, their family uh, don't family foundations and they come to Hong Kong because they want to share the best practice. They want to see how best um, they can set up an infrastructure. Uh, in mainland China recently, every year in September they have a what they call a mass uh, donation day and they've been doing very well. If I get the number correct, recently they had 3.8 billion raised in one day for thousands of charities. Uh, and that's their effort to try to ensure that there's a, a, a proper, um, a safe way to give. Uh, because they're, they're, with, with 1.3 billion people, there could be a lot of uh, gaps and fraud, even in Hong Kong, uh, for to, to cheat the good hearts. So I think um, while we learn from the West, we also learn from the mainland to see how when you have a growing uh, society um, trying to grow good, how you can make the best of it and set up the best structure. So let's, let's be honest, even without the Jockey Clubs Institute, we are all trying to go that direction. But with the Jockey Club putting in so much money and setting up a big structure, and of course they are doing it also for the international um, aware, uh, visibility of Hong Kong, uh, let's let's hope that Hong Kong uh, Jockey Club would also raise the local um, um, stakeholders and also put the local people high up so that they will be uh, on par with the international conversation. Right, um, is huge. Uh, so uh, Bernadette is saying that you you need to ensure that there's a safe way to give that the time and money that people are donating um, is going towards where they intend to go. Um, what role do you see this institute play in doing that? I think the institute and generally the, uh, the research and advisory organizations in Hong Kong as well as in the region have a job to promote best practices. For example, when it comes to accountability, we, for example, CAPS promotes the fact that nonprofits should always make their annual reports public. 
which then provides more accountability to the public about where their money goes, where their money is coming from. Because generally there is a trust deficit, as the professor mentioned earlier, in this sector. And, you know, more often than not, it's guilty until proven innocent in the social sector instead of the other way. Um, so as a result, it's important that the social sector takes proactive measures to create that confidence with the public, with the government and with the private sector in the companies as well. So the jockey clubs, the Institute of Philanthropy, CAPS, as well as uh, HKU and other institutes, I think the role is to provide insights into what works in bridging this trust deficit and also in terms of the tools of philanthropy that can be used to make the most impact in addressing social issues because the social issues and the economic issues for example with it's to do with the environment with to do with poverty in asia are very different to that in the rest of the world so then we need to kind of adapt our skill set to deal with those issues yeah so uh, bernadette i mean some of that trust deficit uh, it's it's to do with you know for example if you uh, give to charity you have receipts that you could you could uh, claim towards your your taxes etc what are some of those regulations that we have in place in hong kong that make us so successful as a philanthropic society I think um, I think Hong Kong, as you know, uh, for for many years, our system of law, um, the law and order, and 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 the high sense of um, honesty, in a sense, uh, ICAC and all that, um, it's we, we all we, we all grew up with that. We thought that it's a you know it's a taken, but but no, it it is not. Um, so. All that um, infrastructure of uh, uh, of trust, of uh, integrity, uh, of, uh, of 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 the um, uh, anti-corruption measures are all part of it. Now, um, I should also say that uh, we, when as we move forward, um, the the values and the the softer side of philanthropy should also be uh, emphasized. Of course, the Let's not forget that the NGOs should also do their part in um, in um, strengthening their governance and performance and so on. And and let's also be careful that the donors are not um, uh, 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 bossing around or using power in the in uh, intervene, intervening or even um, manipulating things. So there's a there's a very subtle uh, uh, dynamic between the donor, the beneficiary and in the philanthropy so that it, it is a culture and it is values that we cherish what do you what do you think mr hewitt that culture of integrity can you can you tell us a little bit about maybe another part of asia how this culture of integrity has encouraged philanthropic um donations yes behavior? because i think with with asian philanthropy there are three key characteristics that we've identified. So CAPS publishes the Doing Good Index every other year, once in two years. And three of the characteristics that we see with philanthropy in Asia, one is that it tends to be focused on community and local issues. So it's not like trying to eradicate malaria in the world sort of thing, but more focused on let's deal with poverty in a town that I know um, that a, a businessman would know. Uh, the second one is that there is a big overlap of corporate and individual philanthropy. And that's because 85% of 
companies in Asia are family-owned. So then it's family values overlapping with company values as well. So there is no kind of isolation between these two strategies and these two entities working. And thirdly, yes, that it's... Uh, yes, could, if I could chip in, um, in fact, in Hong Kong, it's not just the institutionalized foundations. It's a lot of uh, independent donors who don't bother, unlike in the West, they don't bother to set up a family trust or a family foundation. They just donate um because they want to. So even in, in terms of millions or even 10 millions, uh, they won't even bother to set up a, a, a foundation office. So that, that kind of ecology is very different from the West, where they tend to want to set up a, um, a, a donation office, a philanthropy office, and so on. Um, that will change a lot of the giving behavior, too. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bernadette, for joining us this morning. Um, we are now coming up to 9.30, and let's have a look at today's weather. It will be mainly cloudy with a few showers. The showers will be heavier at times in some areas with isolated thunderstorms. There will be sunny intervals during the day. Maximum temperature will be around 30 degrees Celsius. Right now, the temperature is 28 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 88%. <laughs> And here's the news with Haley Yip. The executive director of Hong Kong Unison has welcomed the news that Urdu is being reinstated in university entrance exams here from 2026. John Zia says between 40 to 50 students take Urdu DSE exams each year, as it is their mother tongue. He said the U-turn came after authorities managed to find a service provider to conduct the Urdu exams, but urged officials to reinstate Hindi language exams as well. Police are asking a South Korean woman to come forward after a video she was live-streaming near Central MTR station allegedly show her being indecently assaulted. Yesterday, officers arrested a 46-year-old man in Western in connection with the case. The woman's social media accounts indicate she is no longer in Hong Kong. Authorities have renewed their call for people to stay away from a whale that has been spotted in southern Hong Kong waters after pictures showed an apparent wound on the animal's back. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Buying properties outside Hong Kong seems easy, but if you don't fully understand the risks, it may turn into a terrifying ride. The guaranteed return promised by developers may not be delivered. Pre-sale units may not be completed on time or even remain unfinished. Different places impose different restrictions on non-local buyers. Research thoroughly before deciding. The Housing Bureau reminds you, beware of the risks of buying properties outside Hong Kong. It's a blessing to be healthy. If we can share this blessing with those in need, our lives will be more meaningful. Sign up for organ donation on the Centralized Organ Donation Register. Speak to your family about your wishes. Encourage your family and friends to support organ donation together. Rekindle the lives of others. Spread hope and bring healing to others. Please register online at codr.gov.hk now. Welcome back. This is a Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. And uh, so far, we've been discussing how Hong Kong can become an international hub for charities as the Hong Kong Jockey Club launches a new $5 billion research institute to promote a culture of philanthropy. And uh, if you are listening to us on 1584 AM on the south side of Hong Kong Island, here's a message just for you. Some urgent uh, maintenance work will be taking place today on our Chung 
Hancock transmitter from 11 this morning until 6 this evening, meaning it will be out of action. But of course, uh, you can listen to Radio 3 Territory Wide on 567 AM as well as online and on our mobile apps. And still with us this morning, we have Kathmina Hewitt. He's a senior advisor at the Centre for Asian Philanthropy and Society. And joining us on the line now is Jeff Rotmeyers. He's a founder of Impact Hong Kong. Um, Jeff Rotmeyers, what do you think of this new Institute of Philanthropy? Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here with you. Um, you know, I, I can only imagine it's going to be a good step. You know, um, I was at the at the forum over the past two days at the Jockey Club, and it just felt a lot of ambition. And um, in running two NGOs, Impact HK and Love 21, you know, in this city, um, the Jockey Club have been incredible supporters of both charities as they do um, amazing work in the region here. So, yeah, I'm pretty optimistic, to be honest. Okay, uh, Mr. Hewitt, before the break, you were talking about some of the factors, characteristics that's unique to Asian philanthropy. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think the uh, so the two big characteristics that I mentioned earlier was that it's focused on local community issues, and the second was that there is an overlap of corporate and individual philanthropy. I think the third characteristic is that the philanthropy and the giving tends to take signals and be influenced uh, by government decisions and by government priorities, because there is in Asia a very close relationship between companies and uh, the governments in terms of wanting to continue doing business. So as a result, when the government signals that they have certain priorities, then the philanthropy tends to flow into those areas. So I think this is where, for example, we spoke about tax incentives earlier. When the government says you will get tax incentives if you donate to environmental issues, then that sends a signal to the philanthropists in Hong Kong or in Asia uh, overall that governments in Asia know and pr are prioritizing environmental causes. And as a result, we need to kind of invest in this and put money into this. So, in, uh, so I think it goes back to how we kind of develop Hong Kong as a philanthropy hub and then creating those incentives and signaling what the priorities are in terms of where governments as well as where the philanthropic capital should flow into. Uh, Rod, uh, Jeff Rotmars, do you feel that there needs to be more incentive in Hong Kong for people to be giving? Yeah, I do. You know, I think there's obviously, you know, tax benefits as they touched on last night uh, in their closing remarks. Um, but I think, yeah, a lot, a lot, I think, is still overall, you know, in Hong Kong, especially, it's not a, it's not a city that's giving nearly enough, especially if you look at the wealth divide and you look at the amount of wealth in the city. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely a lot more that can be done in that area for sure. Such as what? Well, such as um, in really appreciating um, the work of NGOs um, in this city. I think um, small NGOs are working with about a million of the most vulnerable people in Hong Kong. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to run an NGO in the city. Um, there's a lot, I think, like 10,000 NGOs and a very small amount of uh, money available. So, you know, so the Jockey Club have done, definitely pulled their weight, um, you know, in supporting NGOs. And I think the government really have to step up and, and do a lot more to help facilitate, um, you know, easier ways for their NGOs to be supported financially. Okay, so this new Institute of Philanthropy, they're saying that they will not only just think about it, they will fund it and 
actually do things towards um, improving uh, philanthropic society in Hong Kong, what do you think their priorities should be in sort of thinking, funding and doing? We've got now, if I'm, if I'm correct in my latest stats, really, we're looking at about two million people, right? So about one in four who are facing food insecurity at the poverty line or below, um, which is just devastating. So, you know, so much has to be put um, to giving better support. And, you know, in, in hearing Winnie O, um, Housing Secretary, speak um, at this forum, uh, with the Jockey Club Forum there, um, it felt like we're trying to put a bit of a band-aid on there and really not understanding the depth of the problem. So I guess my overall concern is really, you know, does this government understand how to actually come up with the solutions and and our NGOs able to, you know, help help remedy, you know, a problem that's just gone so, so big. Oh, what do you think, Mr. Hewish? Do you, do you agree that it's just a Band-Aid, that it's not addressing the root causes of th problems? I think... Uh I agree that more can be done, um, and in, in in terms of where the capital goes in, uh, and how different stakeholders engage with each other, um, and in in addition to kind of food security, I think the other big and upcoming crisis is going to be on climate change. For example, we just faced record floods and a rainfall, uh, and kind of. Uh, ex extensive uh, weather-related issues are much more frequent now as well, and that affects the mostly the poor and marginalised. So these are all of structural issues that need more government support, but also more private sector and philanthropic support to address. Right. And uh, just now, um, Jeff Rottmeyer, he, he was saying that uh, uh, Hong Kong's not giving uh, enough. And uh, Mr. Huey, um, you're saying that, of course, more can be done. Um, do you, can you give us an idea how Hong Kong is actually doing in the area of uh, philanthropy and compared to other places around the world? Mr. Huey? So, in the Doing Good Index, uh, we look at a different an ecosystem of regulations and ecosystem of uh, the social sector overall. Um, and where Hong Kong is, it, it's doing okay. In, in, so we have four categories, and the the, uh, the category that Hong Kong is 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 the doing okay category. And where I think we can uh, improve on is creating the linkages between the different parties, for example. Uh, so creating better linkages between the non-profit sector and the government and the private sector uh, to create the sort of tax incentives um, uh, that will then create more uh, wealth to go towards the, uh, in, in terms of philanthropy. Uh, and, yeah. And then how is Hong Kong doing in terms of uh, corporate philanthropy? I mean, I noticed um, some places uh, it's on a decline. I'm not sure about Hong Kong. So, like I said, I think it's difficult to differentiate individual philanthropy and corporate philanthropy in Asia, particularly in Hong Kong as well, because uh, quite a few companies uh, are owned by families and then they uh, flow their, uh, they put their money into philanthropic uh, uh, initiatives through their companies. Uh, so, but given that there are now more publicly listed companies coming in uh, and kind of family ownership might be declining over the years, I think that's where we need to kind of tap in and kind of get involved a lot more and make sure that the larger companies as well as kind of uh, that are coming into Hong Kong uh, and are publicly listed are then doing their uh, due in terms of philanthropy and encouraging them to get more involved in community issues. Right. Um, you know, when we, when we think about uh, Tonghua and, and 
the Lee Kashing Foundation and, you know, the late Sir Run Run Shaw, these people, you know, have buildings and schools named after them, hospitals, etc. So a lot of the money seems to be going towards hospitals, you know, medical care and education. Now, Jeff Rotmars, you're saying that certain non-profits are not getting the benefits. Is, is, does it need to be sort of redistribution of, of where this money should be going and are certain sectors being ignored? Yeah, I mean, ideally, you would see not maybe not redistribution, but you just see a lot more support and more money, you know, going to smaller NGOs. You know, so, I've been speaking with a lot of uh, NGO leaders recently and, and financially that were really struggling, especially in the last couple of years with the amount of people leaving Hong Kong and so many new NGOs and social enterprises coming into the into the fold. So, yeah, it's a small amount of money to, to fight for, really. Um, and there's just a huge need on the streets. Can you give us some examples other than, you know, people who are involved in education and health? What are these NGOs doing? So we're talking about, you know, in the, uh, NGOs that are working with ethnic minorities, asylum seekers, domestic helpers, helping the environment, um, helping in, in um, you know, food waste in that area, helping in poverty alleviation. You know, the small NGOs in the city are really, in my opinion, doing incredible, incredible work each and every day and really grinding uh, to get the job done. And, you know, I think we're, we're all kind of really struggling in terms of how do we how do we find money to, to do what we do and to operate. And it's a big challenge. Traditionally, how do they find money and what are some of the obstacles? You're, you're constantly in a battle of, uh, you know, applying to different funds, uh, corporate funds, foundations, um, you know, trying to think of ways to, to bring in money that will pay for, you know, things like keeping the lights on or, or staff salaries. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a real battle. And, you know, if I look at the way the Jockey Club operate, I've always appreciated because they put basically an agent in between the money of Jockey Club and the NGO. And you have an agent who basically goes out, seeks NGOs that are doing good work, helps to mold a program that will be effective, and then they go back and get that approved. And the government kind of have a different approach where they sit back with the money and they say, come and apply. And that application process is really rigorous and uh, time-consuming and, and mostly in a, unsuccessful. Um, so it's, it's a difficult, um, yeah, it's a difficult sector to work in, to be honest. When, you, when you're saying it's time-consuming, so you mentioned food waste for food waste program. How, how long does it take? What are the difficulties in setting up such an NGO? Um, the time-consuming part I mentioned was in more in the overall application process of how you apply to get money um, from this government to support the NGO. Uh, but, you know, in starting an NGO in, in Hong Kong, um, I've started a couple now, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a difficult process going through the legal pro legal procedures, and it will take typically a year. Um, it's probably not regulated enough and, and you know, overseen. Um but yeah, it's it's a typical process. It isn't too hard, if I'm being honest. But it's time consuming, and I guess the difficult challenge is after getting your NGO status, how do you sustain financially? Do you agree, Mr. Hewitt? It's just taking too long and just too much red tape. I agree that uh, in in terms of particularly funding. Um, more often than not, sometimes philanthropists and funders tend to not give operational funding. So that means that then the smaller NGOs are unable to invest in hiring more staff, to invest in building a good website. And these are all kind of small factors that then contribute to these small NGOs not being able 
to get the leverage that they can to then get the bigger funding opportunities because we tend to see the money going into like the superstar NGOs and that's because they have more face uh, value um, and they have the infrastructure to kind of then go to the the public but in terms of small NGOs one of the reasons and one of the inhibiting factors is that they don't have adequate operational funding so I think when we think about how to develop the sector in the future I think one area that we need to emphasize more is to encourage funders to provide more operational funding as well as project funding. So project funding is more focused on the project, but operational funding is what really drives the NGO uh, to do its work well. Yeah, Jeff Rotmars, I mean, earlier we heard uh, Bernadette Choi and, and she teaches philanthropy studies at Hong Kong U and she mentions, and, and Mr. Hewitt also mentions, that there is a trust issue when, when you give to charity. Uh, if you give to you know, big fundraising events such as Tungwa or Operation Santa Claus, me as a giver trust that it will go towards that goal. NGOs, sometimes, you know, when they're not very well known, um, I can see there's a problem in, in gaining people's confidence to give to them. Do you find that as uh, an issue? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think a lot of people have lost trust in NGOs and, and worry about where their dollars are going. And I think that's totally fair. I think they should. And I think they should ask harder questions, you know, to NGOs. And, and I think NGOs at the same time should be, you know, more transparent and vulnerable to, you know, be yeah, very clear about where the money's going and, you know, the effectiveness of, of the programs. You know, I think it's a, it's a fair request. And, um, yeah, I think we're trying our best to do, you know, to take those steps and to be vulnerable as an organization. And, and I think it is paying off. Can you tell us a little story about, you know, an NGO that you worked on and, and, and that came across that kind of issue? Yeah, no, I've heard, I've had a, you know, in, in, in the past few years, I've, I've had a lot of, uh, yeah, good discussions and I've heard a lot of, uh, you know, pessimism and, and negativity about the NGO sector and, and, and a lack of trust. And, you know, to be honest, most of that, um, most of that trust is about bigger organizations like the UNICEFs of the world. And, you know, I think if you look at the, the likes of the Caritas and the Tanghua in Hong Kong, I mean, they do an incredibly huge, huge uh, role in this city. They play a huge role in the city. And with smaller NGOs, unfortunately, um, you're not really seeing NGOs that are small in the city that have really bad administrative percentages. They're quite efficient, uh, small staffs, um, very effective in, in, in their work and very important work. So I think it's really about, you know, seeing how NGOs can be very, very clear and more open and addressing, you know, tougher questions, which we would hope to get from the public. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Jeff Rotmars with Impact Hong Kong. And also thank you to Keith Mina Hewitt with the Center for Asian Philanthropy. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Happy 95th birthday, RTHK. Thank you for 95 years of public broadcasting service. Keep up the amazing work. I'm Janice Wailan. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say. 
So it's after 9.45 now, and we're going to talk about plans to bring Urdu back into university entrance exams. Joining us is Peo Biswas, um, who is a specialist in ethnic minority education issue. Can you tell us what are the benefits in bringing Urdu back into university entrance exams? Hi, um, thank you for inviting me. I think it's a great news and welcome relief that for students especially who are studying and uh, preparing for the Urdu examinations that it will be back in 2026 because it will improve the chances of the ethnic minority students to get into university under the current JUPA system and good grades in Urdu will give them a competitive edge in university admission and as we all know that they already are at a disadvantage with what's going on with the Chinese language learning and their proficiency in that language. So when when they get a good qualifi qualification in Urdu, how, do, how does it help these kids towards their own academic career? So, Not just uh, getting into you, university, um, but beyond. Um, not just university. Yeah, but so beyond. I think, yeah. uh, but actually, Urdu is used by almost all Pakistani households in their daily life. This is the language that they use for daily communications with family, friends, community. They're very fluent. The students, the youth here is very fluent in spoken Urdu. And it's a very, very integral part of your lives, of their lives. And but... Uh, what they do not master is the reading and writing because not many schools offer Urdu in Hong Kong. Um, so if they have an added advantage, there might be jobs where they need to speak like Urdu and Hindi, uh, these other languages where you need like multiple languages. So they will have an added advantage for those kind of jobs if they master not just uh, Urdu, but also English and maybe some Chinese as well. But, right. the, but the reality is uh, when they graduate, if they don't have Chinese, it's still an obstacle in, in getting a job in Hong Kong, is it not? That, of course, that's definitely still a reality. And until the education system and the schooling system of learning Chinese and uh, whether we have a, a robust second language learning curriculums and pedagogy is not fulfilled, um, the students are still at a disadvantage of not either learning either languages, either Chinese or any other languages like Urdu and Hindi. So. Uh, uh, till the schooling system is not like overhauled or revamped and they have a better chance of learning the Chinese language, they'll always be at a disadvantage when it comes to employment and social mobility in Hong Kong. Right. Let, let's go back to uh, the, the announcement by the Hong Kong Examinations and Assessment Authority. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're going to uh, do the Urdu exam will return uh, in uh, 2026. And uh, like you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, it, it will make uh, ethnic minority students uh, more competitive competitive when it uh, comes to getting a place at, uh, at local universities. Can, can you talk about um, how difficult it is at the moment uh, for ethnic minority students to, to get a, a spot at uh, local universities? Um, so uh, right now, the current um, JUPA system, which is um, the portal to get into the local uh, universities in Hong Kong, um, looks at your best five subjects. And sometimes it's the first, uh, the core subjects, which is English, Chinese, maths. So uh, when Chinese is one of the core subjects that every program in all the universities consider as, as a core and it cannot be replaced, 
So you need to have a Chinese score. So now most of the students cannot attempt the DSE Chinese examination. Um, and that's why they have to sort for, uh, go for the alternative Chinese examinations, which is the GCSE examination or the IGCSE and GCE. So there are various other alternatives for them to take, but uh, they are like graded between A and E. And most of these grades, so these, this is not Hong Kong based, this is again Cambridge based or um, UK based examinations. And based on these scores, they apply to local universities, but these scores are not um, so th there's a, a question about how local universities convert these scores. For example, if a student gets an A star in uh, in uh, GCSE Chinese, whether the local university will consider it as a level three of equivalent to DSE, level four, level five, level five star star. So that is still very blurry. No uh, university actually gives you very clear gu uh, guideline or gives you a clear conversion table. That's what we call it, a conversion table. And that's the reason most of the students at the Maori students who take these examinations do not know what their actual DSE score are. So which when they are, then when they are arranging the JUPAS choices of the different programs, it they really don't know whether they can get into the lower quartile and whether they got the minimum requirement scores to get into that particular program. And some of these programs like law, medicine, all of these are super, super competitive. So it's very important for you to accurately know what your DSC score is, which they cannot know uh, because of uh, you don't know what the conversion is. Many universities actually just give you a level three, even if you get an A, even if you get a C. So they just consider it as a level three of uh, DSC. And some may actually give you higher scores of five and six. So, yeah, that's the big disadvantage. Okay. Uh, but the heart of the problem um, is that these Pakistani children who speak Urdu, who grow up in Hong Kong, the heart of the problem is why is it that through the earlier school years there isn't a good system to teach them Chinese? Wait, this, this is not a new problem. What do you think needs to be done to make them competitive in the city that they grow up in? I think, again, we need to go back to the schooling system. And uh, you're correct. We have been here for, we've been talking about this topic of Chinese learning for ethnic minority students for over 20 years now. And with the revamped system and uh, with the CSL, Chinese as a Second Language Framework, being introduced in 2014, it's going to be 10 years since it's been introduced. But you still see these students are not equipped with enough Chinese proficiency, uh, whether it's spoken, written, and uh, reading, writing skills uh, so for them to have a competitive edge. Many of these students can use the alternative Chinese examination to get into university, but once they graduate, then it comes to the question of jobs. And as we know it in uh, Hong Kong society, uh, Chinese is a very, very important prerequisite to get to any kind of like basic jobs. So that's where even with uh, students with a uh, university qualification, uh, um, a university degree may not actually end up in a job. They might be underemployed and they might not end up in a job what they wanted to do. So there is a, a lot of uh, careers and aspirations that actually are tied to your Chinese proficiency and again goes back to the schooling system and the Chinese that they learn, the 12 years of Chinese that they learn in primary and secondary school, which is not adequate enough for them to survive.
or go through uh, like a, have a robust or good career in Hong Kong. Have you come across some uh, individuals whose stories that you, you thought was uh, particularly highlighting this problem in your work? Oh, yes. I think uh, most of the students that I have met over the past eight, nine years of my work uh, with SMIT students, almost everyone has faced this issue when growing up in school, when whether in their form five, form six, most of them uh, in school, they're not aware of what are the repercussions of not learning Chinese or not, not learning adequate Chinese. And once they get into the university, then it becomes too late because there is no a course that they can take to bridge them because they might not be like they might have some basic um, skills but they don't have the advanced skills so they don't there is no such course that can bridge them over uh, to the uh, proficiency that they require that is required by these different industries so yes i've come across many students right and, and earlier you said that you welcome the uh, reintroduction of urdu in the mm -hmm. dse exams mm -hmm. uh, but uh, mm -hmm. with the with the actual change uh, basically there would there still be one year where um, ethnic minority students that uh, they can't yes. they won't be able to take urdu for the university entrance exams um how big of an impact will it have on the chances of getting a place uh, at university for that year and uh, have you spoken to any students that might be affected because they'll be taking their DSE exam that year? I mean, how do they feel? So um, students appearing for the 2025 DSE exam will be at a disadvantage because that's a drop year for the Urdu, right? And it's really unfair, especially when now teachers and schools have to pivot to learning to another subject and fast track the students in that. And also it goes back to like, you know, uh, before removing a choice from the students, there should have been a backup uh, by the Education Bureau, at least some kind of backup system that they should have thought about, like if you're removing a choice in 2025, what are these students going to do? We can't just let them slip through the cracks. And uh, personally, I haven't yet spoken to a student who will be appearing in 2025, but I have been speaking to a few um, students in universities and how, because most of them actually are very involved in the communities on guiding the secondary school students on how to apply. So there's this like a lot of of these um, organic organizations or groups that help their counterparts, they help their young, um, the young people from the communities to apply to universities or to make those choices uh, for their careers. So they have been informed and they've been like uh, talking to the students about how they can actually make up in 2025, maybe whether they take another uh, subject in DSC. Okay, but so part of the problem is that uh, there aren't enough people doing the assessment uh, in Urdu and Hindi. That's why those languages were taken out. How can we uh, overcome that problem? Just very briefly. I think right now they have, um, like in the 2026, it's going to be administered by Islamabad's uh, federal board, right? Um, so that's uh, what they're doing. I think uh, that is something that, uh, which is uh, because... Uh, that's when I think this kind of conversation should have started long before removing this cho choice of Cambridge uh, examinations. All right. So I th okay. Well, thank you very much, Pea Biswas, um, with, and she's a specialist in ethnic minority education. And also, thank you very much to our uh, co-host, Janice Wong.